Great to be with you this morning. We're going to continue through our series in the book of Matthew, and we're going to talk about how to be great. How to be great. Who doesn't want to be great? You say, Pastor, that's a trick question. You're right, it was. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again, God, for your love and mercy toward us. And Lord Jesus, we're going to reflect this morning on who you are, God. How great you are and how greatly you served us. And so, Lord, we want to be great, God, but we want to be great in the only sense that it really matters. We want to be like the great one. We want to be like you. So teach us, God, what that means. And that's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Yes, we're going to talk about greatness. I'm going to date myself a little bit, which you already know how young I am. But my high, I, I was in high school from 2002 to 2006, and um, we had a jam in school that they played all the time, and it went a little something like this, I believe I can fly. <laughs> Did they still play that at school? I believe I can touch the sky. Okay, I'm not going to sing for you guys. But the point, the point of that is that, what's the point of that song? That, that's, a, that's a space jam, right? That's Michael Jordan. That's the GOAT, greatest of all time, all right? It's about, it's about how we can achieve greatness. You know, we're trained to pursue greatness. We want to be great. And I'm actually not going to tell you this morning not to pursue greatness, Jesus, I think, in a sense, wants us to pursue greatness. The question is, what kind of greatness is worth pursuing? And it may be, and it is, in fact, the the reality that the world's concept of greatness is drastically different from God's concept of greatness. And we got to learn the difference if we're going to follow Jesus. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. How to be great. From Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. If you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Go to read from Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? 
And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The Word of God. You may be seated. So we're going to explore how to be great under three headings this morning. Number one, obliterating expectations. Obliterating expectations. Number two, overcoming ignorance. Overcoming ignorance. And number three, offering self. Offering self. First, we're going to talk about obliterating expectations. Okay, obliterating expectations. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem Very soon, we're going to talk about the triumphal entry, okay? We remember that Jesus is a faithful Jew. He was raised piously by his mother Mary and his father Joseph. Jesus probably almost never missed a Passover, going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Um, It's hard to... We don't really have much that we can relate to nowadays into thinking about what it must have felt like for a Jew to celebrate Passover, sad to say. (laughs) Probably the closest thing we could come to is a college football game. (laughs) You have all these people, all these pilgrims, all right, and they have their special festal garments, okay, their jerseys of their favorite team, and they all make their pilgrimage to the same town, and, and people from all over the place are all showing up together, All in anticipation of the same event, the same thing. The crowds are surging. The city is surging with people. There's excitement in the air. Now, from a Jewish perspective, this is is the Passover. Although, obviously you can tell it's a lot more significant. They're celebrating the day when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And they're, they're sharing this experience, walking, you know, Jerusalem is a high elevation. They're all climbing the mount, if you will. They're all, they're all going up to Jerusalem together, all these pilgrims ready to celebrate God's deliverance together. The, the crowds are surging. It was a time of joy and a time of excitement. But this time was different. This Passover, Jesus approached the city with both sorrow and grim determination. We, we see a little bit of insight into Jesus' perspective in the Gospel of John. 
Shortly after, uh, in the Gospel of John, after this time here, Jesus says this. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now would the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So Jesus' approach to Jerusalem is different this time, right? This is the very moment that literally his whole life has been directed toward. It is the culmination and fulfillment of his entire life and ministry. It was the thing that he was, the very thing that he was sent by the Father to do. And so we have, for the third time in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus telling his disciples what's about to happen to him. He will be handed over and betrayed by one of his own disciples. He will be handed over to the Romans. The pagan Gentiles, he will be flogged, mocked, and crucified. We're so familiar with these terms that we don't pause enough to think about the, the significance of what Jesus is saying. In fact, the, the, what Jesus is saying really is so horrible that the disciples probably, they, it seems quite clear they didn't even grasp what Jesus was saying. Jesus, he says, Jesus is saying that he would be flogged. Roman flogging was unbearably cruel. There was a whip often uh, that, that was used, consisted of several leather straps with sharp pieces of bone or metal attached to the end. Occasionally, people would die just from the flogging. Your back would be like hamburger meat when they were done with you. Then they would mock him, deride him, insult him, blaspheme his name, spit in his face. And then he would be crucified. We can't imagine anything today like this. Because our laws have rules against cruel and unusual punishment. But they would nail you, your hands and feet to the cross. And you would literally hang there from these nails, impaled upon this, this cross. And you actually didn't die from the nails. You didn't die from the blood loss. You died from suffocation. Because you can imagine hanging like this, all your body weight being hanged on nails in your hands and feet, that it compresses your chest cavity. And remember, you're hanging. And remember, this was intended to be torture. You did not die immediately. They didn't want you to die immediately. You would hang there for hours, possibly even days. And slowly, slowly over time, as your strength wore out, it would become harder and harder to breathe. And especially as it grew closer to the end, okay, 
you would begin to grab, you'd be fighting between not having the strength to do, to push yourself and fighting against the pain, but also wanting not to suffocate. And so you would have to pull on the nails in your hands and push up through the nails in your feet to get a gasp of air before you would sink back down. And that would repeat itself for hours until you died. And Jesus knew that this was about to happen to him. And the people closest to him didn't understand what he was about to go through. Their, their expectations of who Jesus is make, made it impossible for them to see it. They just, they couldn't quite grasp it. It's not, Jesus did speak cryptically at times, but he's not speaking cryptically here. He's literally telling them what's about to happen. But see, their expectations about who Jesus is just makes it impossible for them to see that. And I'll tell you how this works. You know, Meg tells me to go find something in the refrigerator. And I think, oh, I know exactly where that is. And I open and I look and it's not there. And I'm looking for five minutes and I can't see it. And then she walks around the door and grabs it right in front of my face and walks out. Now, what is that? Well, what that is, is it's expectations Make you think you know where it is, and when it's not there, your, your expectations makes it impossible to see it anywhere else. Your expectations have a profound ability to shape the way you view reality. Their expe- my expectations made it impossible to see what should have been there right here. Their expectations of the Messiah made it impossible to see a crucifixion be in the same place as the Messiah. And yet that's where it was. But they couldn't see it. A crucified Messiah doesn't make sense. They hear the words, but they can't reconcile what's happening to Jesus What's going to happen to Jesus with their conception of who Jesus is? How could someone as great as God's son be treated that way? But the lesson that we need to take away is that what's, what's so interesting is that this, his, his foretelling for the third time of what's going to happen to him happens right before uh, this discussion, their discussion about their, great, their own greatness. And what we see here and know is that there was, there's no one greater than Jesus. Amen. And yet, what did greatness look like for Jesus? It looked like flogging. It looked like mock, being mocked. Blasphemed, spit in his face. And being crucified. You still want to be great? That's what greatness looks like. Because no greater person has ever lived than Jesus Christ. So if we want to be great, we must have our expectations obliterated about what greatness truly is.
it's something different than we think. It's definitely different than what the world thinks. And we must begin to retrain ourselves to understand true greatness. So number one, obliterating expectations. Number two, overcoming ignorance. It says, The mother of the sons of Zebedee, verse 20, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So, think about this now. We have uh, Jesus, and he is telling them the horrible things that are about to happen to him. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there and he's in such agony, not just over the physical things that's about to happen to him, but the fact that he's about to bear the wrath of God due to the sins of other people, that they might be forgiven, that he's, he's sweating drops of blood in his prayers to God and his disciples can't even stay awake. And he has told them what's about to happen to him. And he, is, he, he just has this grim determination about what he's about to endure in the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And then his disciples are worried about what positions are going to be in his cabinet. You know, I remember as a child... Wanting my mom to ask for things that I was too scared to ask for. But here we have some grown men. They get mom to jump in. Some have held that James and John's mother was actually Mary's sister, Jesus' aunt. Which might account for her boldness in this request. The request is quite remarkable. She asks that her sons might sit one at his right and one at his left in his kingdom. That is, she wants her sons to occupy the highest positions in the kingdom of heaven apart from Jesus himself. Interestingly, as we kind of alluded to before, Jesus does not directly rebuke their desire for these positions. However, he does critique Their ignorance. Because they don't know what it takes to be in those positions. In this regard, it's similar. Because you don't attain greatness by doing nothing. There's a cost to it, even in the kingdom of God. His initial response was to ask them this question. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? So the first instance of their ignorance is that they don't understand the cost of attaining such a high place in Christ's kingdom. And what is implied here quite clearly is that 
such places in his kingdom are only attained through total obedience to Christ, which is going to entail great suffering for his namesake. Because that was Jesus' cup. Jesus' cup. The Old Testament speaks of the cup of God's wrath, the cup of his suffering. The Apostle Paul talks about, talks about wanting, uh, wanting to be like him, uh, to, 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 share, uh, to, to share in his suffering. He says that by, by any means he may attain the resurrection from the dead. A consistent theme throughout the Old Testament is that if we're, if we're, if we're, if we're want to be certain that we're going to be raised from the dead like Jesus, we, we must be willing to suffer like Jesus. They don't understand the cost of what it's going to take to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Being great in the kingdom of heaven means suffering like King Jesus. They say, yes, we're able. We don't know if their response is just naivety or just enthusiasm. Jesus doesn't condemn their enthusiasm. In fact, we can imagine that he's pleased that James and John do have the best intentions to follow him, even through suffering. And he tells them that they will, in fact, drink his his cup. James, John's brother, the apostle James, was the First apostle to be martyred for Jesus' name. We know that the apostle John was island to the exile to the island of Patmos for his proclamation of Christ, and some traditions, maybe legendary tradition, says that he was it was even attempted to to, to boil him alive. We could go through all the other apostles and so on. They would drink his cup. And we know for a fact that the apostles will clearly occupy unbelievably high positions in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, because you have followed me in my sufferings, you will sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. But, Jesus says, to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. It's not mine to grant. They would be granted privilege to suffer. They would be granted the privilege to suffer for Christ. And we know that they did in count. They did, in fact, count it a privilege. In Acts 5, it says that um, when they were, when Peter and John were brought before the Jewish council and severely beaten, it says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And so they learned, they learned that it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. This is not just a, this isn't just some kind of mock thing. They really were rejoicing because they really knew that the more they suffered for Christ, the greater privilege it was because the greater the reward they had coming. 
So they were ignorant of what it would cost, and, 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 and they're also ignorant that the highest places in the kingdom are for those um, are not, in fact, Jesus's to grant, but those for whom it has been prepared for by the Father who is in heaven. That is, these places of his right hand and his left hand are part of God's sovereign decree, his sovereign plan, God, his electing grace. God has a place appointed for everybody. And we will stand in that place that he has for us. To sit at the right or the left hand of Jesus is, the, is for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. And of course, there's mystery in this, okay? It, it, uh, it is um, uh, like, it, like we read earlier. It says they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. Okay? In other words, they counted it a privilege to be able to suffer for the name. Not everyone will be able to suffer for the name like they have. But they will receive their reward. We all have our, we all have our place. And we should embrace the place that God has given us. We don't, we, we don't know the place that God has for us. But our only responsibility is to be faithful with what God entrusts to us. And when we're faithful with what God entrusts to us, he'll make sure that we end up in the right place. And that's just the way it is. And we have to trust God with it. I could work my whole life and I'll never be a Billy Graham. That's not for me. That was for him. And what was for the Apostle Paul was for the Apostle Paul. What I have to be concerned about is what does God have for me? And I am a firm believer that the greatest people in the kingdom of heaven will be the people that we've never heard of. James and John wanted to sit at the right hand and the left hand, and who knows, there may be people at the right and the left hand of Jesus, and we, we, we have no idea who they are. The greatest people in the kingdom of heaven might be those Christians who were dipped in tar and lit on fire to light the roads of Rome under Emperor Nero. It might be the brothers and, and sisters who starved and froze to death in the Russian gulag because they refused to bow to neither communism. It might be the brothers and sisters just a few years ago who were crucified by ISIS for their refusal to deny Jesus. Those who will be greatest will be those who are granted by God to suffer and fulfill their allotted place in the kingdom of God. In fact, this, what, this is what the angel told Daniel at the end of his visions. He said, but go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So would we be great in the kingdom? We must overcome our ignorance and understand that greatness in the kingdom of God comes at a price. It comes at drinking Christ's cup. It comes at a willingness to suffer for him. The Apostle Paul said, everyone who desires to be a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Nobody in this room may, may ever be martyred. But you know what? If you follow Jesus faithfully, truly, courageously, it's going to cost you something. And in fact, the younger we are, the more likely it is it's going to cost us something. 
right here in the United States. The question is, are we willing to suffer for the name? And when we do suffer for the name, will we rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffer for the name? Because greatness comes at a cost. Why? Because how can we expect to be like the great one if we're not willing to suffer like the great one? So number one, we must have obliterated expectations. Number two, we must overcome our ignorance. And number three, we must offer ourselves, offering self. It says, when the ten heard of it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see the next part about greatness, Jesus' next lesson about kingdom greatness. We see that the other disciples were indignant at the brother's request. And we all know why they were indignant. Because they didn't ask first. (laughs) Jesus seizes this teachable moment to give them a climactic lesson about true kingdom greatness. That is, kingdom greatness is utterly antithetical to worldly greatness. We know how it works in this world. We know, he says, the Gentiles exercise authority over their subjects. Out there, greatness is determined by the degree to which a person is able to get others to serve them. But in the people of God, greatness is determined to the degree by the number of people whom we are willing to serve. And it's totally different. It's a totally different way of looking at the world. It's a totally different way of thinking about greatness. People who are great in this world seek to be served. People who are great in Christ's kingdom seek to serve. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. We don't like servant and slave language today. There's There's some good reasons for that. But unless we understand this language, we cannot understand the demands made upon our lives by Jesus Christ. You know, I had an interesting conversation, which I believe I've shared with you before, but I I had a conversation with an African college student. Now, not African-American. He was African. He was from the country of Senegal. And talking with him about Jesus and he was rather hardened to the gospel because of the biblical language of, of uh, being called a slave and how the Bible says Christians are slaves of God, slaves to Christ. And so my friend was appalled by the evils of slavery, and rightly so, but he allowed the evils of human slavery 
to wall up his heart against the liberating servitude of Jesus Christ. You see, there is a true servitude, and yes, we can say there is a true slavery when it comes to serving Jesus Christ. And the apostles were not ashamed of this. The apostles embraced this. The Greek word is doulos, and it means bondservant or slave. It's closer, it's closer to the idea of what we think of as slave. It, well, it's, not, it's a very broad term because there's all different forms of slavery in the Roman world. It, it, it wasn't the same type of system that we had in, in, um, in America, uh, chattel slavery. Was, um, slave, slaves could hold very high positions within a household and so on. But the point remains is that a slave was, had to be submissive to the will of the master. But what is remarkable about this is that Paul and the other apostles repeatedly refer to themselves as a doulos, a slave of Christ. They were not ashamed of this term. They were proud of this term. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. He is my master. I do not serve my own will. I do not do whatever I want. My master tells me what to do and I gladly serve him. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. If that sounds like strong language, it's because it is. But if you know Jesus Christ, you know he's easy to serve. He's worthy to serve. There's no one like him. You see, the Bible says that actually, whether we like it or not, we're always a slave. Because you're either a slave to sin... Or you're a slave to Christ. You either serve your sin or you serve Jesus Christ. No one is free. So if you want to be free from Christ and do whatever you want, so be it. Serve your sin. Be free from Christ. Be a slave to your sin. But know this, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. If you can be free from Christ. But then you're only choosing to be a slave, from sin, a slave for sin. And it's a far more cruel master than Jesus. So we're all slaves. And if you're a slave of Jesus. You're going to be a servant of others also. And we know this because this is how Jesus was. In Philippians 2, Jesus says that he, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, a doulos, a slave, and made himself, made himself nothing, and became obedient. Jesus was obedient to God the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that... At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So because Jesus made himself a slave, everyone in heaven and on earth will call him Lord. 
Because the lower you make yourself in this world, the greater you are in the kingdom of heaven. That's why the Apostle Paul can say, I'm a slave of Christ. If we would be great in the kingdom of God, we must seek not to be served, but to serve. That's what Jesus did. He gave his life for his people. So the question for us that we have to ask is what... is what's the posture of our hearts? Are we like Jesus? Do I primarily seek to be served? Or do I primarily seek to serve? That's the difference. That's the posture of the heart of those who are great in the kingdom of heaven. The way you know that you primarily seek to be served The people who primarily seek to be served are those who are always mildly frustrated. Always feel like you got to remind people of how they fell short of your expectations. People feel like they kind of got to walk on eggshells around you, scared they might hurt your feelings. Those who seek to serve are full of joy, humble, Gratitude and graciousness. People are drawn to them because they're not demand. They don't. They're not demanding from you. They're always seeking to give to you. You see, they're free from themselves because Christ has given them everything they need. So they don't have to demand it from other people. Christ is is overflowing them so they're full to give to others. There is no freedom like being free in Jesus Christ. And this is true greatness. So how can we be great? We must obliterate our expectations of what greatness is. We must overcome our ignorance and realize that if we're going to follow the great one, we must suffer like him and be willing to suffer and, and, and have courage to suffer. Have courage to speak the truth. Have courage to not live by lies. And I just say that because it's coming, church. It's coming right here in America where there's going to be huge societal pressure for you to say things that you don't believe. And to not say those things could cost you your job. That's not, that it's coming. So, so, so following Christ is going to have to be willing to suffer like him. But it also means this, that in the midst of whatever God calls us to endure, in the fundamental posture of our hearts is we are servants. We're servants of Jesus Christ. We seek not to be served, but to serve. And there's no greater freedom than that.
And so as I close this morning, Jesus said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, that cup that Jesus came to drink, the wrath of God due to the sins of the world, that was my cup to drink. That was your cup to drink. I deserve God's wrath, God's justice, God's judgment. But Jesus came to serve, to give his life, to stand in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins, to pay the ransom so that we can escape the judgment that we rightly deserve. That's the gospel. That's the way that he served his people. If that can't make you live for Jesus, I don't know what will. He saved us. He's redeemed us. And so this morning, this morning, if you've yet to be truly set free, that's what Jesus has done. And he says, if you turn from your sins, you repent and you believe in him, you trust in him. He forgives you of all your sins. Past, present, future. He forgives you of all your sin. He gives you citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. And he teaches you how to be great. Life now becomes no longer about you. And it's the greatest thing that will ever happen to you. So you can be free today through Jesus.